On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Let me ask you something. If you could buy a book that contained a lifetime of thinking and experience on the, the most important matters of spiritual truth by one of the greatest Christian leaders of all time, and that book amazingly had been distilled down to only a few pages, would you buy it? Would you read it and study it and, and try to plumb the depths of its spiritual truths and wisdom? Well, that's exactly what we have in Paul's letter to the book of Ephesians. So this morning, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, as we begin our study in this amazing book. Ephesians chapter 1, and let me read our text for this morning, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, beginning now in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The book of Ephesians is considered by many to be the greatest of Paul's writings. It has been called the crown and climax of Pauline theology. One writer refers to it as the Grand Canyon of Scripture because it, it, breath, it is breathtakingly beautiful and apparently inexhaustible to the one who wants to take it in. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Ephesians the sublimest and most majestic expression of the gospel. And to paraphrase another commentator, he said, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. And from beginning to end, we see in Ephesians the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the transformation the gospel produces in the lives of all of those who believe. I mean, this is a rich, instructive, and deeply touching passage of Scripture from which we will be able to glean some great practical lessons for ourselves today. But before we get into the first two verses, it, it's helpful to have an understanding of the place and the people that Paul was writing to. The city of Ephesus was the undisputed center of religious and political life in that region of the Roman Empire. In the middle of the, the first century, Ephesus boasted a population in excess of 250,000 people. It was the most important city of Western Asia Minor and a major center of political, economic, and religious activity. And although Pergamum was the official capital of Asia Minor, Ephesus was its greatest city. In fact, one Roman writer called it Lumen Asia, or the Light of Asia. It was also called the Marketplace of Asia. At one time, Ephesus had the greatest harbor in Asia. It was a center of wealth and commerce, a, a crossroads of travel and trade, much like San Francisco or New York City in our day. Ephesus was a city of great events. It hosted the Ephesian Games, which rivaled the Olympic Games in Greece. It boasted a huge theater, which seated in excess of 25,000 people. It was a city of great pageantry. In fact, one man said the whole pageantry of Greco-Roman life could be seen in its most brilliant colors in the city of Ephesus. 
But Ephesus was also an extremely wicked city. First of all, it was given over to the worship of the pagan goddess Diana or Artemis. The temple of Diana located in Ephesus was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes played a major role in the worship of Diana, who among other things was the goddess of fertility. Thus, the worship of Diana included all kinds of sexually immoral acts, orgies, etc., etc. A major industry in Ephesus was the manufacture of silver shrines, miniature models of the temple or statuettes of the goddess. And the manufacture of these shrines was an, was an extremely big business in Ephesus. In fact, you'll remember from Acts chapter 19 that Paul's ministry in Ephesus really threatened the businesses and the incomes of the, the silversmiths who made these shrines. And the influence of this goddess and the cult attached to her permeated every area of life for all of those who lived in Ephesus. Because the temple was the major banking center for the city. Her image was on their coins. One month a year was named after her. The Olympic-style games Ephesus hosted were held in her honor. She was trusted as the guardian and protector of the city. But Diana wasn't the only deity worshipped in Ephesus. There were some 50 other gods and goddesses also worshipped there. Among these are a surprising number of goddesses, which included Aphrodite, Athena, Sybil, and the Egyptian goddess Isis. The male gods included Zeus, Asclepius, Apollos, uh, or Apollo, Dionysus, and others. Ephesus was also home to the Roman emperor cult. And the worship of the Roman emperor was, was a prominent feature of life at all levels in Asia at this time. In fact, Caesar Augustus was spoken of as the savior. His birth was hailed as the beginning of good tidings to the world, and, and the calendar was adjusted in light of his birth. And today you can see the statue of the Roman emperor Trajan among the ruins in Ephesus. Of course, he ruled after Paul's lifetime. But you can catch the spirit of Roman rulers at this time because the statue shows Trajan's foot on top of the world, giving the idea that he was a god. Ephesus was also a center of paganism, steeped in the occult and magical arts. In fact, one man said Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. It was famous for amulets and charms, supposedly having magical powers. In fact, people came from all over the world to purchase them. One commentator wrote, Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Here many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. This was first century Ephesus. It was an important, wealthy, cosmopolitan, but pagan city. The culture steeped in materialism, sensuality, gross immorality, the occult, magical arts, and perverted idolatrous practices. Sounds a lot like many big cities today, doesn't it? And from the perspective of a first century Christian living in Ephesus, uh, the city was, it was a hostile environment, to say the least. But Ephesus was also home to one of the finest and largest churches of New Testament times. The church at Ephesus had a rich, rich spiritual heritage. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended in power, 
we know that 17 nationalities were represented, men, some of them from Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital. So it is quite possible that these men were the first to carry the gospel back to the region around Ephesus. But Paul's visit to Ephesus on his return from Europe during his second missionary journey was probably when the church in Ephesus was founded. And we know at that time, Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And though he was only there for a very short time, he left Priscilla and Aquila, a Jewish husband and wife team whom he had lived and worked with in Corinth, who were well-taught Christians, to continue the ministry there. Christian truth was also taught in Ephesus by Apollos, a converted Jew of Alexandria who visited the city. And Acts 18 tells us he was a man competent in the scriptures who had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And of course, we know that Paul's three-year stay there on his third missionary journey was what made a deep and lasting impression on those in Ephesus. And during his extended stay in that wicked city, God demonstrated the mighty power of the gospel through Paul's life and ministry. And after Paul left Ephesus after three years, a few years later, he sent Timothy to pastor the Ephesian church, during which time Timothy had to deal with the very things that Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about in Acts chapter 20. And Paul sent his letters of First and Second Timothy to Timothy as he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And then according to church tradition, the Apostle John ministered there and was probably leading the Ephesian church when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos. And this, this could indicate that the epistles of John may have been written to address issues in the churches in and around Ephesus. And church tradition says that after John was released from Patmos, he then returned to Ephesus, where he later died. But prior to John's death, some 40 years or so after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus received another letter. And at this point, Paul was gone, as were many of the first generation of believers converted under Paul's ministry, and the apostle John was in exile on Patmos. The situation in Ephesus had changed for the worse. In fact, it was such that it called for a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, penned by the Apostle John, and you can read this letter in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And so the Ephesian church had a rich spiritual heritage, enjoying the ministry of some of the giants of the Christian faith. And it was to these precious believers that Paul had pastored in Ephesus that he wrote the letter of Ephesians from Rome sometime between 60 and 62 AD while he was under house arrest during his first Roman imprisonment. And this is why Ephesians is often referred to as a prison epistle, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which were also written during this same time period. And so it was during his imprisonment at Rome that Paul's thoughts turned to the saints in Ephesus. And he wrote this beautiful letter to them. Now typically when Paul wrote letters, he wrote to correct something. But in Ephesians, we see little of that. I mean, certainly the church of Ephesus was like any other church in that it had its problems. But at the time Paul wrote this epistle, there appeared to be no major problems or difficulties. And so Ephesians is more reflective and less corrective. 
And that being the case, Ephesians is a letter of encouragement, a letter of exhortation in which Paul conveys his pastoral heart for the Ephesian believers. I mean, Paul knew how wicked the city of Ephesus was. He had experienced it personally during his three years of ministry there. And so he knew the precious believers living in and around this city needed to be reminded of their position. They needed to be reminded of who they were in Christ and and how they were to live in light of this new identity. Paul wanted to ground, shape, and challenge his readers so that they might live their faith, walking in a manner worthy of their calling in a place that must have been very intimidating to this small group of believers. And the Ephesian Christians were marginalized in a pluralistic culture that was tolerant of many things except the gospel and the church which proclaimed it. And that too sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? And so as one commentator wrote, the Ephesian believers needed to know they were secure. So Paul teaches them that they are anchored in the eternal purposes of God. They lived under the threat of dark and sinister powers. They needed to know that Christ had conquered all his and their enemies. They were surrounded by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They needed to know that God had raised them out of that spiritual death. They were confronted on a daily basis with Gentile paganism. They needed to know that Christ had brought them into the family of God. They lived under the shadow of a false temple. They needed to know that they were the true temple of God. They lived in an ungodly society. They needed to know how the gospel would transform their lives. They saw life in marriage, family, and business corrupted by self-interest. They needed to know how grace could transform all relationships. They were under attack from forces of darkness. They needed to know how they could remain standing in the battle. And this and and much, much more Paul unfolds in the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians consists of six chapters which naturally divide into two parts. The first three chapters are theological, emphasizing who we are in Christ, our position in Christ in the heavenly places, all because of of his sovereign grace. And the main idea is that God's wisdom, glory, and power are displayed in his eternal purpose for the church made up of both Jew and Gentile reconciled in Christ. In chapter 1, after the introduction, Paul outlines the incomparable blessings that come to us because the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit sealed us all to the praise of His glory. And because these truths are so profoundly deep and vitally important, he prays that God will enlighten or open our minds to comprehend the riches of all that God has given to us as members of the body of Christ. In chapter 2, Paul contrasts what what we were before we met Christ, dead in trespasses and sin, and, and what he has done for us by his grace. He raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And he wants the Gentile Christians to remember that formerly formerly they they were completely separated from Christ and God's covenant promises, but now they have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of the cross. And he himself is our peace who reconciled the Jews and Gentiles into one body through the cross so that in him we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, Paul begins by mentioning that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. 
And this thought apparently gave him concern that his imprisonment might cause some of the Gentile believers to doubt God's sovereign control over these trials. And so he digresses to show them that God had revealed to him the mystery that had been concealed in the past, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and that God's wisdom is now being displayed through the church in accordance with his eternal purpose. So Paul's tribulations were on behalf of the Gentiles for their glory. And this again causes Paul to, to break into prayer that God would, according to the riches of his glory, grant that these believers could comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, that they may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And the second three chapters, chapters 4 to 6, are practical and focus on Christian behavior. In these chapters, Paul shows how comprehending God's glorious purpose for the church and our position in Christ, this should cause us to live in practical godliness. And so in, in chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul outlines how we are to walk or to live in this world. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We're no longer to walk as Gentiles do in the futility of our minds. We're to walk in love, walk as children of light. We're to walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise, especially as it affects marriage, the family, and the workplace. And he concludes in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, by showing how we must stand firm against the unseen forces of evil by putting on the full armor of God. And in unfolding all of these wonderful truths, Paul emphasizes a number of themes, but foundational to all the themes is the centrality and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God sovereignly purposed to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 10. I mean, everything in God's dealings with us centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ and our being in Him or in Christ. The rich salvation that he has graciously bestowed on us in spite of our sin is another wonderful thing. And closely coupled with salvation is that the church as the body of Christ is at the heart of God's purpose. And related to that is the mystery hidden in the past but now revealed that the church is a new creation made up of both Jews and Gentiles on equal footing. And this means that the unity of the church is extremely important and that is another dominant theme. And although there are a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians because they were written during the same period of time, in Colossians the Holy Spirit is only mentioned once. But in Ephesians the Holy Spirit takes a major role. We're told that we were sealed with the Spirit as the guarantee of our salvation in chapter 1 and, and 4. We have access in one Spirit to the Father, chapter 2. We, we are being built into a dwelling for God by the Spirit, chapter 2. The mystery of Christ now has been revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit, chapter 3. We are strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being, chapter 3. We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, chapter 4. We must be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And we are sealed by the Spirit in chapter 4. We're to be filled with the Spirit, chapter 5. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit, chapter 6. And to pray at all times in the Spirit, again in chapter 6. So these are just some of the great truths that we're going to try to understand in a deeper way as we work our way through this rich epistle.
And you know the amazing thing is that all of these deep, rich, profound truths are contained in six chapters with a total with a combined total of only 155 verses. That's amazing. I mean, in my large print copy of the Bible, it's only a little over five pages long. It'll take you about 20 minutes to read the whole thing out loud. Yet it will take the rest of our lives to understand it and apply it. And even though Ephesians is such a short letter, Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of it takes eight volumes. Eight volumes. He has 37 messages on chapter 1 alone. John Calvin's 48 sermons on Ephesians take up 705 pages. And then, uh, to cap it all off, the Puritan William Gurnall in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, in which he expounds only chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, takes almost 1,200 pages. And so if I get a little long, just remember these guys. (laughs) Right? I mean, the point is simply is that there is far more depth in this short epistle than I can ever begin to understand or apply in my own life, much less to expound on it. And so as we come to it, we, we must pray as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In this epistle, we find divine truth and power. And that is why if if we will carefully, reverently, and prayerfully consider this letter, it will change our lives and therefore our church. See, You see, it's not so much a question of what we will do with this epistle, but what will this epistle do with us? And my prayer is that God would work mightily in each one of our hearts and lives and and in our church for his glory as we look together at the book of Ephesians. Well, this morning we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And here we see the letter to the Ephesian begins the same way uh, ancient letters usually begin, with three details. The sender's name, the recipients, and a greeting. Notice verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the opening words tell us the, the author of this letter is Paul, which is the name specifically connected with his ministry and calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. But there are some who argue against Paul being the author. But I'll say this, I have no doubt whatsoever that Paul wrote this letter. Why? Well, first of all, because Paul himself says he's the author. And he also gives two strong exhortations about speaking the truth in this letter. And not only that, the early church universally accepted that Paul was the author, and this was not challenged until the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so I'm going to stick with Scripture, church history, and the majority of Christian scholars and commentators. And so when he says Paul... 
We all know who we're talking about. But he didn't start out as Paul, did he? His original name was Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, probably named after Israel's first king, King Saul, who was perhaps the most prominent Benjamite. And Saul, or Saul of Tarsus, was well-educated in what today are called the humanities. But his most extensive training was in rabbinic studies under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And Paul, or Saul, became uh, an outstanding rabbi in his own right. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council at Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee. In fact, the Bible says he was a Pharisee of, of Pharisees. I mean, he was the, the, the golden-haired boy of, of the Pharisees. I mean, he was at the top of his class. And his strict religious training combined with his own sinful nature had created in his heart an extreme form of religious self-righteousness. I mean, he was right with God, so he thought, because of how scrupulously religious he had always been. He was also one of, if not the most zealous anti-Christian leader in Judaism. And he passionately hated the followers of Jesus Christ. And we first see Saul in Scripture as, as he's holding the cloaks of those that stoned Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. I mean, Saul was the chief persecutor of, of Christians, ravaging the church, entering homes, dragging off both men and women to put in prison and to put to death, according to Acts 8. But as he was on his way to Damascus to bring Christian, any Christians from that city bound to Jerusalem, God sovereignly intervened in Saul's life when a bright light from heaven suddenly blinded him and, and knocked him to the ground. And as he lay in the dirt, he heard the Lord say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Saul responded, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And so the former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, the murderous Saul of Tarsus, met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and was converted in Acts chapter 9. And then in just a matter of a few days, he began to proclaim Jesus in, in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. And that's, that's utterly amazing. I mean, think of it. A man who formerly would have been compared to a terrorist, Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor, this same man became a preacher of the gospel. And not only that, a, a missionary and a church planner and a writer of a good portion of the New Testament. And we know for certain that he wrote at least 13 letters that are, that are included in the New Testament. And scholars debate whether or not Hebrews was written by Paul. And if Paul wrote Hebrews, that would make his total contribution to the Bible 14 books. And that is, that is quite a transformation, isn't it? Quite a transformation. It's a demonstration of the power of the gospel. And as a Christian, Paul, once a persecutor, was, was a man who was often persecuted by the world. A man who was demeaned and despised even within the church. But in his own eyes, he was the very least of all the saints. But his life reminds us that God can radically change anyone. I mean, he is, he is an example of God's 
gracious and merciful patience with the most or with the worst sinners. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul was living proof that God could save any sinner, no matter how great a sinner they might be. And so Paul begins this letter, as he does all of his New Testament letters, with his own name, Paul. But he's not writing simply as a pastor and church leader, but as an apostle, one who has fulfilled a foundational role in the establishment of the church. And so he writes Paul, an apostle. So he states his title, Apostle. He doesn't define it. He doesn't describe it. Because the churches knew what an apostle was, and they knew that he was an apostle. But we should define it. Because there are a lot of people running around today who have taken the title apostle for themselves. And so let's define it. What is an apostle? Well, the word is apostolos, and it means one who is sent, or simply a a messenger. And the word essentially means an envoy. And so you could translate it delegate, ambassador, or messenger. And it was a very familiar term to the Jewish people as well as to the Gentiles. It referred to a special emissary who was sent out from a king or government official as a representative with legal authority to act on behalf of the king or on behalf of that government. In the New Testament, the word apostle had a general and a particular or technical usage. In the general sense, it was used, for example, of representatives sent out by a church on a mission. It's used that way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, just as a couple examples. And there, in those two verses, it's translated messengers, referring to men appointed and, and sent on a mission as representatives of those churches. But an apostle in in the particular or technical sense, which is the way that Paul is using it here, is a term that cannot be applied to every Christian like the words believer, saint, or, or brother. Because there were requirements to be an apostle. You had to have seen and heard, experienced the living Christ, been with Christ. You know, seen him risen from the dead, and as the word implies, been chosen, commissioned, and sent by Christ. And Jesus chose 12 such apostles. They're listed in Matthew chapter 10 by name. Luke 6.13 says, He, Jesus, called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So Jesus named them apostles. And there were 12 of them who were apostles. One of them, Judas, an unbelieving apostate, committed suicide. And so in Acts chapter 1, Peter and the other ten apostles sought the Lord and chose a man, Matthias, to take the place of Judas, and then there were twelve again. And then, by the grace and mercy of God, one more was added later, and that is the apostle Paul. But people questioned whether Paul was truly an apostle. But Paul said to the Corinthian church, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And those are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is yes, of course. 
Paul saw the resurrected Christ in a unique way when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus when Paul was converted. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 20. Jesus also personally appeared to Paul on other occasions. Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 22, Acts 23, 2 Corinthians 12 speak of it. Paul had seen and heard, experienced the living Christ, been with Christ, seen him risen from the dead. That's an apostle. And this meant for Paul that he was among that unrepeatable band of apostles who together with the prophets were the foundation of the church. The term apostle in the particular sense then is a special term reserved only for the twelve and for Paul whom the risen Christ had personally called and appointed. And so Paul begins by stating that he was one of those apostles, one of those commissioned by Christ himself to a unique position in the founding of the church. And this is why Paul identifies himself now as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus in this introduction, not because there had been attacks made on his apostleship in Ephesus as there had been at Galatia and Corinth but rather because he wanted to establish his credentials at the outset. Paul is simply laying the foundation for the Ephesians to receive the word that he's writing to them. And so he emphasizes that he is an apostle by divine calling and commission. He was chosen and sent with a special mission as the fully authorized representative of Jesus Christ himself. And this means Paul's ministry like that of the other apostles, including his letter-writing ministry, carried and continues to carry a special weight. I mean, the fact that these words were written by an apostle of Christ Jesus means that his words come to us with the full authority of Jesus Christ himself. Which means when Paul wrote, he wrote the very words the Holy Spirit inspired and Jesus intended his church to possess. And therefore, it behooves us to listen with humility and attention. Because Paul is not writing as a private individual who's just sharing his personal opinions. He's not writing as a, a gifted but fallible human teacher or even as the church's greatest missionary hero, but rather he was writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And therefore, as a teacher whose authority is precisely the authority of Christ himself. And this means that whatever we find taught in this letter, and there are some challenging truths in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, but whatever we find taught in this letter comes from Christ and God himself. And therefore, it's to be accepted in obedience to him. Paul was writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Then he says, by the will of God. By the will of God. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It was not a matter of choice on his own part. Paul didn't aspire to, ask, or apply for the job. No. It was by divine initiation, preparation, and authentication, which is to say it was by the will of God. And these words, by the will of God, are an expression of Paul's entire theological perspective. By the will of God, he became a Christian. By the will of God, he became an apostle. His authority as an apostle was by the will of God. The power of his ministry, whether in teaching or healing the sick, was 
by the will of God. It was only by God's will that he would eventually visit Rome, according to Romans 15. And whatever else Paul would achieve before he breathed his final breath was all by the will of God. And this phrase reminds us that it was God's unmerited favor and grace that saved Paul and called him to serve. It all happened by the sovereign will of God. And the same is true for us. I mean, none of us probably had a dramatic conversion like Paul. But if we know Christ as as Lord and Savior, we know that that was not by our own doing. We were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. We were living in futility, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of our ignorance and hardness of heart. We were callous, given over to sensuality and impurity. That's Ephesians 4. And while we were in that lost condition, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this was all according to God's purpose, which he set before Christ, or set forth in Christ. In other words, it was by the will of God. But not only is our salvation by the will of God, all things and and everything in our life at the very moment are, are, are also by the will of God. I mean, Paul himself made this clear in Ephesians chapter 1.11 when he described God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does all things mean? All things, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Not just Paul's ministry, but yours as well. I mean, Paul was an apostle by the will of God, whereas some of you are school teachers by the will of God. Others are housewives by the will of God, while others are nurses, lawyers, construction workers, salesmen, police officers, or firemen by the will of God. God's will extends to our lives and and calling and careers no less than it did to Paul's. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that who you are, as well as what you do, where you live, how much you own, and whatever you accomplish is by the will of God, excluding, of course, our sinful deeds, rebellious attitudes, and failures to obey the word of God. But God's will encompasses and permeates and infuses all that you and I will ever be or do or say or think. I mean, God values who we are and what we do, because it is the fruit of his will, working and orchestrating all things for the glory and praise of his grace in Christ Jesus. And so you see, this means there's no second-rate job or inferior ministry or meaningless endeavor when all is by the will of God. And so rejoice. I mean that rejoice that that all that you are, all that you ever will be, all that you have or accomplish is by the will of God. What a comfort it is to know that, that it is by the will of God. And this is the first of four times in chapter one that Paul speaks of the will of God. And so this directs us right from the start to one of the great themes that runs through this epistle, the sovereignty of God. 
Ephesians tells us from start to finish that the gospel and Christianity are under the sovereign control of God. God sovereignly accomplished our redemption through Jesus Christ. By his sovereign will, he sent apostles to preach the gospel. He sovereignly chose us from before creation to be saved. And at the time of his choosing, he will sovereignly consummate and complete his redemptive plan to the glory of his name. As one man said, salvation is all a matter of God's sovereignty. We encounter this truth in the first verse of the book, just as we will find it standing out in glory all through Ephesians. So the author of this letter is Paul, who is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And who's he writing to? And who are the recipients? Well, look back at verse 1. He's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. And as you know, saints, unfortunately, uh, it's a precious word, but but it's been so twisted and perverted. I mean, for many people, saints conjures up images of painfully thin, sad-faced, you know, monastic sort of souls who look like they've been sucking on lemons. Right? And unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has tainted the word with a lot of superstition. According to Roman Catholicism, saints are those few whose great spiritual achievements and merits cause them to be set before the church as models and intercessors. And and so they're canonized by the Pope. And they're to be prayed to as the Catholic Church teaches because They do not cease to intercede with the Father for us as they proffer the merits which they acquired on earth. And that's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And under this teaching, saints are adored, venerated, and trusted for salvation. And so it's very common to find Roman Catholics praying to the saints instead of to God, seeking help from and and offering praise to mere dead human beings. And of course, this is unbiblical, but not only that, it's, it's idolatry and it's blasphemous because it flies in the very face of Paul's plain statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's not Mary, it's not the saints, there is one mediator, Christ Jesus. So what is a saint? Well, the root meaning of the Greek word from which we get our word saint is separation or consecration, and it means holy ones, or holy, or or holiness. And, And, of course, holy means set apart by and for God. And it speaks of people who have been set apart by God for the worship and service of God. The Old Testament Uh, uses the word for the people of Israel. They were set apart from among the nations for God to serve and worship him. And according to the use of the word saint in the New Testament, uh, it's not a special class of people. No, saint is a term that is used for every single believer. The word saint is... It describes what happens in the hearts of all of those who come to faith in Christ. Well, what happens? Well, we've been set apart by God for God, becoming his property and his holy people. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
And this is the believer's position in Christ. We are saints. We have been set apart. Another way to say it is we've been sanctified. Now we've been set apart by, by God as his property, his people, to worship and serve him. And so being a saint is not some future destiny, but rather it's a present reality. When you become a believer, you are set apart to God. You, you are a saint. You're set apart unto him. So this means that even the, the most obscure, weak believer today is as much a saint as the Apostle Paul himself. Every believer in Christ is a saint. So when Paul speaks of the saints or holy ones in Ephesus, he's not speaking of a special class or, or super spiritual elite uh, Christian who, who, based on his own merits, has achieved sainthood because, you know, they've reached a certain level of holiness. Not at all. Never, never. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is a saint, not because of their conduct, not because of their own merit, but rather simply because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. But practically speaking, we don't always live or act like saints, do we? And so the goal is to bring our practice up to our position. In other words, the goal is to live out what we are in Christ. And if we're truly Christ's, we'll have a new nature, right? Old has passed away, all things become new, new creation in Christ. So if we're truly Christ, we'll have a new nature, we're going to have a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, new loves, new desires. We belong to a different kingdom. So although a saint doesn't mean we'll, we'll always live saintly lives, all saints will nevertheless be better than they would otherwise have been and will continue to grow, develop, and to display the character of Christ. They're going to display Christ-likeness in their lives. I mean, all Christians are saints. And all saints must be increasingly saintly. So Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus. Now, there's a lot of discussion about whether the words in Ephesus was part of the original wording here. And although almost, I mean, the majority, the great majority of, of the manuscripts included, there are two or three of the oldest manuscripts that, that do not, and they have no geographical name in its place. And so because of this, many scholars think that Ephesus was wasn't written specifically to the church at Ephesus. Rather, it was uh, what they called a circular letter. It was, it was written to be read by various churches in Asia Minor in the general vicinity of Ephesus, which was the most prominent church, so that's why it was probably sent there first. Well, fortunately, whether it was a circular letter or not, uh, the question doesn't in any way affect the authenticity of the letter, nor does it affect the value of the letter or the truths contained in the letter. The teaching in Ephesus was not only God's authoritative word for Ephesus, but for everywhere where there are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every period of time. So we'll let the scholars argue that one, because it makes no difference in terms of the letter. And so Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, and then notice he says, and are faithful. They are faithful. He does not mean those who are trustworthy or who can be relied upon. 
but rather those who have come to God by means of faith. The first and primary meaning of this word faithful is to exercise faith. So Paul is addressing these Christians at Ephesus as those who are believers, those who have exercised faith. They are Christians because they are believers. And so you could actually translate this verse to the saints and believers, or the saints who are believers, or the saints and believers in Ephesus. The Ephesians were Christians because they're believers. They, they had heard the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, and then they had exercised faith in the gospel, or they believed it. And of course, that's, that's vitally important because the New Testament constantly stresses faith or the need to believe the gospel message and trust God in order to be saved. There's no other way to be saved. And this description tells us that to be a Christian, you must believe certain things. You're not a Christian simply because you're, you're a kind person, or because you lead a, a certain lifestyle, or are outwardly moral and even outwardly religious, and you know, like to attend church. You are a Christian if you believe specific and essential truths which center on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, saving faith is rational. There there are certain things you must know, but it's also emotional. In other words, you must be convinced of those truths. And by that, it's volitional. In other words, you must surrender your life to Christ, putting your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. Saving faith involves personal commitment. It involves the heart as well as the head. You know, believing God's word, we give ourselves to Christ, we we take him as our own, and, and then we live for him. Because that commitment is manifested in our lives by the choices we make, our words, our actions, and our behavior. You know, so many people today say, well, yes, they believe in Christ, but they're just not walking with him. Baloney. That's a great theological word, baloney. <laughs> Saving faith means a personal commitment in Christ, to Christ. We, we commit ourselves to him, we take him as our own, and then we actually live that out. That commitment is manifested by, in our lives by the choices we make. Again, our words, actions, and behavior. And believers are called to be faithful to Christ, reliable in his service, ready to defend the truth, ready to obey what he commands. I mean, Christians are saints and believers, and then most importantly, Paul says, they are in Christ Jesus. They are in Christ. Christ Jesus. This phrase and its equivalent, such as in him, in Christ, in the Lord, in the beloved, occur some 30 plus times in the book of Ephesians. And they reflect a profound theological truth. You say, well, what does it mean? What does in Christ mean? Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, believers have been baptized into Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says, For for in or by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In Galatians 6.27, Paul states that we have been baptized into Christ. And none of these verses speak about water baptism or a second work of grace. 
They speak of something that happens the moment we believe in Christ. It is a great mystery that the human mind cannot fathom, but but somehow and in, in some spiritually supernatural way that transcends time and space, the person who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is then united to Christ. And at the moment of conversion, Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, baptizes or immerses or places the new believer into the body of Christ and in, into union with himself, and we become one with Christ. And on this basis, Paul goes as far to say in Ephesians 2 that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so at conversion... We are joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true of him is also true for us. John Stott in his commentary describes this vital theological truth very clearly. Listen to what he said. To be in Christ is to be personally and vitally united to Christ as branches are to the vine and members to the body and thereby also to Christ's people. For it is impossible to be part of the body without being related to both the head and the members. According to the New Testament, especially Paul, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, one with him and with his people. You see, when God opens our blind eyes to see our own guilty condition and also then the beauty and the glory of the person of Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we, we stop all of our efforts to save ourselves. We cast ourselves totally upon Christ. And when we do, God places us in Christ Jesus so that all that is true of him becomes true of us. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Christians are saints. Those who have believed, and most importantly, they are in Christ Jesus. And this is Paul's third description of a Christian. Uh, and of those believers at Ephesus, a one who by grace is in Christ, you know, joined to him. And so as believers, by God's grace and through faith, we are in Christ so that what is his is now ours. You know, we no longer belong to the world or follow the world's morals, ethics, lusts, and desires. In Christ, we received a new self, a new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We, we now live in the world as Christ's people, representing Christ, serving Christ, trusting Christ, and waiting for Christ to return. You see, loved ones, you are either in Christ or you are not. You, you are either in Christ or you are not. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. You are either in Christ or you are trusting in something else. Trusting in yourself, in your works, in false religion, or, or false hopes for your eternal destiny. But, Paul, but as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are His. And all of those who are His are in Christ. And so the question this morning is, are you in Christ? 
Are you truly in Christ? I want you to notice Paul's description of his readers. They're saints because they belong to God. They're believers because they've trusted in Christ. And they're in two places. They're in Ephesus, and they're in Christ Jesus. They had a relationship to the world by birth, by natural birth, and they had a relationship to Christ through faith. So consequently, they're in the world, but not of the world. They're simultaneously citizens of two kingdoms. You know, they live at the same time in Ephesus and in Christ, or in Christ in Ephesus. One man wrote, To speak of Paul's sense of geography is an attempt to describe the place where he thought Christians lived. In Paul's mind, just as these Christians live literally in Ephesus and the surrounding region, they also live in Christ. The terrain, climate, values, and history in which people grow up and live helps to define who they are. As really as Ephesus defines who they are, Christ defines who believers really are. He is the sphere of influence or power field in which they live and from which they benefit and are transformed. That is, his spirit, values, character, history, and purposes shape their lives. People can live in other spheres, but Christians live in Christ. Jesus Christ must never be depersonalized by such language, but we will not understand Paul unless we learn to think of life as lived in Christ. And so for the believer, there are two levels of experience. You know, two kingdoms of which we're citizens, two perspectives from which we may view life. So for us this morning, we are in or or at Palisadro. I mean, in, in a very real sense, that's where we are. But we are more than citizens of an earthly city or state or or country. And you see, no matter where we are geographically and physically, what we are spiritually will never change. And so you may be at work, at play, you know, overseas or under the weather or out of money, but you're always in Christ. You may be down on the dumps, over the hill or or beside yourself, but you're always in Christ. You may be in Pocatello or in prison. You know, at the movies or in San Diego, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Our geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on our spiritual identity. But our spiritual identity as one in Christ must control and characterize how we live, wherever we live. And so we might move, you know, from place to place. But wherever we are, we're in Christ. And that is why for the Christian, outward circumstances should make little difference because our peace and our joy are not dependent upon them. And that is why, as one man said, the Christian will do any job with all his heart. It may be menial, unpleasant, painful. It may be far less distinguished than he might expect to have. Its rewards may be small and its praise non-existent. Nevertheless, the Christian will do it diligently, uncomplainingly, and cheerfully, for he is in Christ and does all things as to the Lord. So in whatever geographical location we call home, 
as believers, we are always in Christ. And it's Christ then who should be setting the tone for our living. And now in verse 2, Paul gives a, a, a greeting in the form of a blessing. And we'll finish up here quickly. Notice verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both grace and peace are major themes in this letter with grace occurring 12 times and peace 8. And it's important that we understand this reference to grace is, is more than simply a, a greeting. It's a sincere, prayerful concern and desire for his readers to experience more of God's grace, more of his unmerited favor and power in their lives. I mean, all believers are saved or justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But in addition, God supplies daily grace to to meet the needs of the Christian, giving undeserved provision and, and forgiving daily sins. And here Paul is stressing that daily grace, that Grace upon grace, as John called it. That, that grace upon grace that we need to live life in this world. Grace to you, he says, in peace. And of course, biblically speaking, this is always the order. Grace and peace. When a sinner becomes a Christian, he gains an unchangeable standing of peace with God or before God. This is a, a judicial peace. In the world, however... A Christian needs the peace of God for daily protection from all the the pressures of his own heart and mind. And peace is always the product of knowing and appropriating the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so, loved ones, if we ignore the grace of God, then we will forfeit the peace of God. But the more we grasp and the more we experience the grace of God, the more capacity we have to experience the amazing aspect of God's peace. First, that peace with God, the peace of God, and then peace with one another. I mean, as believers, if if we could just see, I mean, if we could just see that each day our life begins and ends with divine grace and peace, then we would have joy and stability amidst all the instability of the sinful world that we live in. Grace and peace. And what is the source of these two wonderful blessings? We'll look back at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul pronounces this blessing on his readers from God our Father. You know, we, we have said that so many times as Christians. We say it so many times. We read it so many times that we, we, we have forgotten what uh, an extraordinary privilege this is. It's an, unimag- it's an imaginable, unimaginable privilege. I mean, both the Old Testament and New Testament testify that God acts as a father to his people in, in, in the most persistently loving fashion. As the psalmist said, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And the sovereign God of the universe, think of it, the sovereign God of the universe intimately and tenderly identifies with us as his adopted children 
who were once children of wrath. That's incredible. And of course, this is all brought about through the mediation of the second person named in the blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the source of these new covenant blessings is not only God the Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has risen from the dead and has been invested with power and authority from the Father. Jesus is now Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul stresses the lordship of Christ and explains it in new and and significant ways in Ephesians, especially as it relates to the unseen spiritual dimension of the principalities, powers, and authorities. I mean, every chapter of this letter contains references to this exalted title of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go through this book, we're going to learn what we should be and how we should live in this world. But from the very beginning, there's no mystery about how we're to be it, how we're to do this. It's by the will of God and by grace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The the grace and strength of God alone can help us. Because, loved ones, we have no other strength. We have no other strength. But by the grace and strength which he supplies, and we can overcome, we can be victorious. Let me close with uh, the story I came across. In 1738, John Wesley boarded a ship in the British colony of Georgia to return home to England after two years as a Christian missionary. During the long voyage home, he had plenty of time to reflect on his life. He looked back over his time at Oxford University where he was ordained a priest in the Church of England and distinguished himself for leading a group known as the Holy Club. These zealous young men met nightly to study the Bible and devoted themselves to good works. And this was followed by arduous missionary work in the New World or or here in the States. With these credentials, it it is a surprise to read what Wesley wrote in his journal while sailing home. Listen to what he wrote. It is now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why, what I least suspected, that I, who went to America to convert others, was myself never converted to God. Wesley had come to realize that for all his religious attainments, his degrees, his associations, his morality, his works, he lacked a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Though an eminent member of the church, he was not a Christian. Wesley began searching for true salvation. And it was not long before he found it in the gospel of God's grace and especially in the precious blood of Christ. Wesley records with joy his coming to true and saving faith. He wrote, I felt my heart strangely warm. 
I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And Wesley's experience is an important, important one for us to reflect on. Because many people in the church today are in the same situation that he was in. They have read or, or read the Bible. They've given time, labor, and money to, to the cause. But they've never stopped relying on their works. They've never stopped relying on their supposed goodness. And as a result, they have never entered into the eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so as we begin our study in, in this deep, rich, and profound letter to the Ephesians, there is no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul would want us to reflect on these matters just as John Wesley did on that ship ride home. You know, am I a Christian, he asked. Am I a saint? You know, am I saved through faith? Am I in Christ, no longer belonging to the world? And if you cannot give a definite answer to these questions, then you should turn to Christ right now. You should repent. You should turn and give yourself to Jesus Christ, believing the gospel and putting all of your faith and trust in his finished work as your only hope of salvation. And if and when you trust in Christ alone for salvation, your sins will be forgiven. You'll receive eternal life. God will credit to you the very righteousness of Christ. And the Holy Spirit will immerse you into Christ and you'll be made one with him, joined with him. And as Paul says in our text, you will be in Christ, in Christ Jesus, a saint set apart by God for the worship and the service of God. And may it be so in all of our lives. So if you've never trusted Christ alone, I, I urge you with all that is within me, trust him today. As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 
1-800-242-9073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.